Well, I'm going to call your attention to the uh, bouquets this morning because uh, Marlowe included a rose among the daisies because I wanted to begin with a question about the giving and receiving of flowers. Okay? Ladies, if you were given a choice, would you rather receive roses or daisies? Gentlemen, if you were to purchase a bouquet, which would you choose? Roses or daisies? Now, if I were to guess, most women would choose roses and men would choose daisies for reasons known to any who have purchased both. <laughs> you know, I was fortunate for years because Marilyn actually preferred daisies. Her tastes did change, and now roses are in the running. But she's happy when I bring home any flowers, even leftover church bouquets. <laughs> daisies or roses, they're both beautiful. Daisies are delightful, and a field of daisies is a sight to behold. But a rose is without a doubt a thing of beauty, even if it does have thorns. Now, why roses have thorns is something known only to the one who designed them. Maybe it was to protect their fragile beauty, to keep munching rodents away. Or maybe it was to simply serve as a contrast to their loveliness and, and, and highlight their beauty. Something we note when we say a woman in the midst of a group of men is a rose among thorns. But with that in mind, it would appear that Mark has intentionally placed a rose among thorns in our text for today. Chapter 14 begins with two verses that picture the hatred of the chief priests and scribes. And verses 10 and 11 tell us of Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Planted in the midst of those two pictures of ugliness is a picture of beauty, of love for Jesus being lavishly expressed by a woman who anointed his head with costly perfume. Now, all four Gospels tell of Jesus being anointed by a woman. But there's long been a question about how many anointings actually took place. Origen, one of the early church fathers, thought there were three. Luke records an anointing that apparently took place early in Jesus' ministry in Galilee when a sinful woman anointed his feet in the home of a Pharisee named Simon, which led to a discussion of love and forgiveness. John tells of an anointing that took place six days before the Passover in Bethany, when Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed Jesus' feet with a pound of very costly perfume, which led Judas to object saying it should have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Matthew and Mark 
both tell of an anointing that seems to take place only two days before the Passover, again in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper. There, Jesus' head was anointed with costly perfume from an alabaster vial. And the disciples objected, saying it should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now, Origen thought these accounts recorded three events. Most liberal scholars today suggest that they are all faulty records of the same event. Conservative scholars generally suggest that there were two events. The early anointing that took place in Galilee and a later one that took place in Bethany. If that is true, and I believe it is, then the anointing by Mary, which took place six days before the Passover, was intentionally placed in the text here by Mark and then copied by Matthew as a contrast to what was happening to Jesus two days or perhaps even a day before the Passover. The phrase two days can also be translated on the second day, which would mean the next day. Now, we tend to think history should be recorded chronologically as events happen. But it's not unusual for ancient historians to record it thematically, to follow a thought line in their presentation. And Mark doesn't say that the anointing took place two days before the Passover. He says that's when the chief priests and scribes were counseling together to kill Jesus. He simply noted that it was while Jesus was in Bethany that the anointing took place, apparently looking back to what had happened a few days earlier and mentioning it here as a contrast to the hatred of the Jewish leaders and the betrayal of Judas. He was picturing a rose among thorns. At least we're going to look at it that way. Looking first at the thorns and then focusing on the rose. Now the Passover and unleavened bread was two days off. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. He began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. We have thorns on either side of the rose. The first thorn being the hatred of the chief priests and scribes. They had long before decided that Jesus had to be neutralized. He was a threat to their power and position in society. He had exposed their hypocrisy on several occasions, and they hated him for it. They tried to discredit him and verbally entrap him, but that hadn't worked. They hadn't been able to turn the masses against him, so they decided they would take matters into their own hands secretly. Now, Jesus was now back within their grasp in Jerusalem. 
But so were crowds of pilgrims who thought he might be the Messiah they were looking for. Now, the exact number of people in Jerusalem during the Passover is apparently not known, kind of like estimates of protesters at events and in the streets these days. You know, I've read that the population of Jerusalem was 25,000, and it doubled to 50,000 during the Passover. That it was 50,000 and doubled to 100,000. And that it increased fivefold to 250,000 during Passover. Josephus actually records that in 65 A.D., Roman officials kept a record of the number of lambs killed during Passover, and they counted 256,000 lambs. Since the law required at least 10 persons per lamb, some have estimated there were close to 3 million people in Jerusalem during the Passover. Whatever the actual number, the priests didn't want a riot on their hands and had apparently decided to wait until after the Passover, hoping the crowds would go, but Jesus would stay, and they could kill him then. But it was the will of God that the Lamb of God be offered on Passover, the celebration of the day when the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt who applied the blood of a lamb to the doorway of their home. The symbolism was significant. It would now be blood of the perfect lamb who would take away sin, who would save those who applied his blood to the doorway of their heart. Contrary to the plans and schemes of men, God's will was made possible. And it was made possible by the betrayal of Judas. His offer bumped up the timetable and made it fit into God's plan, not the plan of the priests. Now, that doesn't exonerate Judas for what he did. He was a free agent in the betrayal. And why he went to the chief priests and offered to betray Jesus, we can only surmise. No doubt he didn't approve of the direction Jesus' ministry was taking. He, like the other disciples, didn't understand why the Messiah would have to die. But the bottom line appears to be that he decided if it was going to happen, he might as well profit from it. He went to the chief priests. They didn't come to him. And according to Matthew's account, he bargained for the price of betrayal, settling for the paltry sum of 30 pieces of silver, the value assigned in the Mosaic law to a slave who had been gored to death by an ox. Perhaps he figured just being on the winning side of the confrontation between the Jewish authorities and Jesus would be of benefit to him. Whatever his motivation, he betrayed Jesus, and it was an ugly thing. But Mark contrasts that ugliness with something beautiful. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. 
But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For the poor you always have with you, and whenever you wish, you can do them good. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken in memory of her. Mark doesn't tell us this was Mary, but he does identify it as taking place in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper. John gives us Mary's name and says the anointing took place in Bethany but doesn't specify the home. So there's no contradiction between John and Mark. It is a little unusual that the anointing took place that took place earlier in Galilee was in the home of a man named Simon. And here it takes place in the home of a former leper named Simon. But Simon was a popular name, and Mark may have included the description, the leper, to distinguish him from the Pharisee. The fact that John says Mary anointed Jesus' feet, and here we read that the woman anointed his head, is not cause for concern either. It was customary to anoint both. While those at dinner were reclining at table, lying on pillows with an elbow on the table, and legs stretched out alongside. The amount of perfume used, however, was unusual. Usually just a drop or two was used after washing the dirty feet of the guests for purposes I'll leave to your imagination. Mary, like the woman in Galilee, had her perfume in an alabaster vial. But her vial was filled with a pound of pure nard, a very costly aromatic from the mountains of India. And she broke the neck of the vial, pouring its entire contents over Jesus' head and feet. John tells us Mary then wiped his feet with her hair, as did the woman in Galilee, and that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It was, however, an act of extravagance that wasn't well received by most at the dinner. John identified the chief objector as Judas, but Matthew notes that they were all indignant and felt it was a waste. They agreed with Judas that it should have been sold and the money given to the poor. 300 denarii equaled a year's wage. Now, John tells us the real reason for Judas' objection was that he was a thief and wanted to get his hands on the money. But it sounded righteous to criticize such extravagance by suggesting it could have been put to a much better use. But Jesus came to Mary's defense and in doing so revealed her act as a beautiful picture of love. 
a picture we would do well to duplicate, not only in relationship to Jesus, but in our relationships with each other. When Jesus said Mary had done a good deed to him, he could have used one of two words for good, one that refers to that which is morally good or one that refers to that which is aesthetically good, that which is lovely. Jesus chose the word for lovely. Mary had demonstrated her love for him by a lovely act, reminding us not only that love must be expressed, but how it should be expressed. And of course, we should never assume someone knows how much we love them. It should be expressed openly and freely, even extravagantly. It should be expressed in a timely manner as well, at the opportune moment. How often have we regretted not expressing our love when the perfect moment had arrived? You know, Mary could have done a lot of good with $50,000 in today's money. She could have helped a lot of people. But there would be other opportunities to help the poor. The moment to ex extravagantly express her love for Jesus would be gone if she didn't seize the moment. So she seized it without regrets. And while she did what may have seemed excessively extravagant to some, she did what she could do. It was her vial. And she could do with it whatever she wished. Now, obviously, not many could do anything that extravagant. Most don't have the resources, but she did. And for her to do less would have been a cheap expression of her love. Not that the value of the expression in and of itself matters. As Mother Teresa said, for God, it is not how much we give, but how much love we put into the giving. Whether the gift is two copper coins or a vial of nard, it's the love that goes into the giving that matters most. And it doesn't even have to be a material gift. Just make sure you express your love in a language that can be heard and that shows you put thought into it. Now, that's not to say it's wrong to bring home a church bouquet. Flowers shouldn't be left to wither in an empty church. Just don't be shocked when church flowers, no matter how beautiful, aren't viewed as a thoughtful expression of love. But what Mary did for Jesus was a thoughtful expression of love. And whether she understood the full significance of what she was doing for Jesus or not, we have no way of knowing. But she was actually anointing his body for burial. We do know Mary listened carefully when Jesus taught, so much so that it annoyed her sister Martha, who was busy with pots and pans. And she may have indeed understood that he was facing death. To suggest she understood she was anointing his body for burial might be assuming too much. But what is obvious 
is that she put thought into her gift, and it meant a great deal to Jesus. In fact, what she did for him would never be forgotten. He said that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, her lovely act would be remembered. Now, sadly, many of our expressions of love are not long remembered. But if they're given extravagantly at the opportune moment, with the needs and desires of the one receiving our love foremost in mind, they will at least be noted. And our love should be noted. In fact, Jesus said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love. For one another. Let's learn from Mary's gift and let's express our love for Jesus and for each other in ways that make it stand out like a rose among thorns. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that is filled with thorns. There are a lot of people who are in pain and hurting and have been inflicted. Help us. Help us to demonstrate the presence of a rose in the midst of the thorns today. Help us to love in a way that, that can be seen and draw men's attention to the greatest gift that was ever given the gift of Jesus on a cross. The rose whose head was crowned with thorns. Thank you, Father. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us in a way that can be matched by no other. And when we start feeling like the thorns are encroaching our life and that life isn't worth living and that things are horrible, help us see the rose again. Help us see Jesus. And help us as followers of Jesus and those who've invited Jesus into their heart and their life, help us to demonstrate love in a way that expresses how much he loves us. Thank you, Father, for again reminding us of the love you've called us to share and the love by which we will be identified in this world if we love each other extravagantly. In Jesus' name.